You must milk <laughs> this kitty. Radio Draw. It's a very somber Thursday night. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is Cecil T. Robot. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's very depressing. It's very sad. Peter, if uh, if I could whistle, I would do a nice somber Ennio Morricone type song, but uh, I can't whistle. Well, the the reason we're a little somber is we're going to be talking about movie scores tonight, which is precipitated by the death this week of James Horner. Before that, I don't have any clever segue this week. Just go to adamandeve.com, use the promo code DROME, and you get 10 free gifts on top of whatever you order. You get six free DVDs, a free mystery gift, a gift for him, a gift for her, and free U.S. shipping for using the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. Tonight we're going to be talking about music scores. Like I said, this is James Horner, who has created some of the most iconic music scores that there are. He died in a plane crash this week. So we're going to be looking at not just his work, but just how important his work was to movies. What is the score that immediately jumps out to you as the most epic that just makes the movie for you? I would have to go with, and uh, it would be just because it was, I remember being so young uh, the first time I heard them, Danny Elfman's Batman score and John Williams Superman theme, you know, because I saw those movies so young and the Batman cartoon, I would just watch endlessly. Uh, they're not my favorites, but just so memorable because they're so ingrained into my mind from knowing about them for so long. It's probably what's going through my head right now is the Raiders of the Lost Ark theme. Uh, that just gets you so pumped up. Just hearing that, that, da, 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 oh, it's so good. So that takes a good movie and elevates it to just a whole other level. I, I, I have two that I kind of deal with. One is by James Horner, which would be the Aliens score. Also, Basil Polidorus's the opening to Conan the Barbarian. Yes. That is mm. almost the definition of an epic intro. Oh, 
like the alien score it was actually so epic that james horner technically scored movies he never worked on that alien score has been used in the trailers and commercial music in over yeah. in over 70 different items bishop's <laughs> uh bishop's countdown right i believe that's the track was used in like dozens hundreds of uh 90s action movie trailers yeah mm -hmm. and you know and sometimes that happens for instance go back and listen to the original robocop trailer that uses the t score from Terminator on it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> because Basil is... Doris had not done his RoboCop score yet. Well, there's yeah. the Terminator score in there. It's about robots, right? RoboCop score is is just so memorable. But, I mean, if it wasn't written yet, then it makes sense. Well, mm. it, you, you bring up RoboCop. That's actually a really good instance of diversion. What we think of as the classic RoboCop score... doesn't appear until about 25 minutes into the movie. It's actually yeah. a track called Rock Shop because Paul Verhoeven specifically asked Basil Polidorus not to create a title card score, but he wanted a RoboCop theme for when we're getting into how RoboCop comes into creation. So that iconic... Da -na -na -na, da -na -na, that doesn't come till 20 minutes into the movie, and I think a lot of people forget that. It's great. I, that's a really great uh, way of building it up because it, it, it does. The score builds up as the movie goes along. You get like kind of a light a sort of sci-fi synthy twinkling throughout the film. Uh, you get some like epic scores, but it's all building up to that main theme. It makes sense because they wouldn't start the film with that because why do the RoboCop theme? He's not RoboCop yet. It may, you know, I mean, even though it's not called the RoboCop theme, it pretty much is the RoboCop theme because it just it just swells and booms like as he's, you know, as he's getting into it. And uh, it's just so kick ass. Well, with with James, what is your favorite? What are your, some of your favorite James Horner scores? I have to go with Aliens, as I already said, Battle Beyond the Stars back when he worked with Roger Corman. And that theme, Roger Corman's used that in a dozen different films, too. But that <laughs> theme almost defines space opera just besides Star Wars, as far as I'm concerned. care if I'm perceived as a fag for this his Titanic score was <laughs> was amazing he deserved mm -hmm. the That's Oscar true. for his score for Titanic not a fan of Titanic myself but the music in it was great my favorite uh oof, it's it's tough because I have a lot 
that I really, how about a, just a bunch that I really enjoy? I don't know uh, <laughs> which one would technically be my favorite. Krull, Wrath of Khan, uh, Aliens is, is just amazing. Like you said, uh, the Titanic theme is just freaking memorable because it repeats so many times throughout the movie. And for, you know, a three hour movie to have that recurring theme song and you don't get sick of it just you know is a testament to how strong it is and how it's done in different ways you know sometimes it's done with like a full orchestra other times it's done much more you know scaled down and um yeah so um let's see commando is another one yes commando kicks ass commando is such a good score <laughs> so yeah he's done some really amazing stuff how important is the score, do you think, to a movie? Not necessarily to you, but to the success of a movie. Do you think a great movie with a bad or okay score can still be a good movie? Or on the opposite side, a movie that's not very good, but you go, damn, the music is fantastic. How important is the score to to the success? And I don't mean that financially. I mean to the movie working to a film. Before I get into the, the how important I see a score uh, being for a movie, uh, I, I would like to list off uh, my favorite James Horner James Horner soundtracks, which uh, to me I really love the as Cecil was talking about Commando score, uh, and I do love Rathcon, I love Aliens, but I really do love his his more action based uh, synthy scores like in Forty Eight Hours in Commando, his use of the the steel drum uh, with the synth is just kick ass is uh, having music that really fits with what you're seeing. Um, in, in a score like Mando's score, you've got this synthy, action-based, you know, quickly-paced kind of music that really fits with, you know, watching Arnold kick ass. Uh, and then you've got the more big, booming, uh, orchestral, epic scores for stuff like Aliens, for stuff like Titanic. Definitely for for RoboCop, like, you know, you know, Basil Polidaris' score for RoboCop is just amazing, and, and it's and it fits so well with that film, and you really couldn't picture anything else in that movie, because it's, and it's what we were talking about, the way it would build up, and how the theme would show up 20 minutes into it, and then you've got this you know, RoboCop's main theme that would uh, begin to show up more and more, and more he gets into being what he is. I think it's definitely important. Brandon was talking about uh, one of the movies that he was talking about with, of, of the Jaws knockoffs, how uh, the music just didn't fit whatsoever with it. It was like this random, smooth, jazz, funky kind of stuff. That really is important. You can't just throw in any music and expect it to fit context of, of what you're seeing. Like, like could you really picture... And, and the example I'm going to make is somebody's, like, sort of, you know, what if Game of Thrones was in the 80s? Like the, you know, soft focus VHS... Like, like the way people kind of perceive the 80s is that everything was synthy and they did that that Game of Thrones if it was in the 80s, like on VHS or on, uh, you know, cable with a VHS rip and it has this like synthy version of the theme. Well, I personally could not picture, say, Conan the Barbarian without uh, Basil Polidaris' theme. Like, I can't picture Conan using this like goofy synthy music that would belong in a sci-fi film. So... It is important. It's important with the with the context of the film, what kind of film it is, brings it to a, a level of epic. If the movie is good and the score is so-so, then it, it, it doesn't ruin the movie for me, but it does kind of take it down a little bit. Like, it's, it's like, ah, it was almost, uh, you know, awesome, but instead it's just, like, really good. 
And God forbid if the score is just bad. Now, this is an example. This is not a good movie. But here's a case of taking something that is a mediocre movie, having the wrong music and making it worse. The remake of RoboCop that came out last year, I believe, uh, there's a big shootout in uh, early on in the film. Oh, are you talking about where, where they play Hocus Pocus by Focus? Focus a weird Focus cover Focus version? Focus, Ugh. yeah. It, and, I yeah. like I like that song, by the way. It's just totally inappropriate for that movie. It yeah. is the complete wrong song for that moment. It 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 doesn't work at all, and it <laughs> it makes a bad like. The scene might have worked uh, if if maybe it was just, you know, some random orchestral, you know, thing, some you know, uh, or some nice uh, even like a uh, kind of a, a rock tune, you know, kind of, you know, he's because he, he's jumping in and out between like pillars and shooting the cops. And and but with with Hocus Pocus by Focus, like you said, I, I like the song. I don't I don't dislike it, but it is absolutely the wrong song for that and consequently <laughs> it makes uh, what could have been an okay scene just terrible and stupid so mm-hmm. there are a lot of movies so that's a case of taking a um something that's mediocre and then dropping it down a level but with uh some movies uh, i i know i've seen some movies that have had like mediocre scores but that's the thing you don't remember those like you yeah. remember Jaws, you remember uh, Jurassic Park, you remember the movie, and then you also remember the music that went along with it. But if there's a really good movie and it's just kind of got like a mediocre score or just kind of a generic rock soundtrack, you usually don't remember that. And that kind yeah. of also factors into making the film bigger because then it's it's a whole thing. It's like it's a visual and an audio because mm-hmm. well, the example I had was Lady Hawk. Lady Hawk is a fantasy film set in a sword and sorcery type film. And you've got wizards and curses and knights. And the entire score is a synth pop from the <laughs> mid 80s. It is so brutally inappropriate for the movie that you're watching oh, that God. Lady Hawk became famous for how bad its score was. <laughs> movie but what the fuck were you thinking <laughs> with that score uh, i think uh, it's i think it's a good well i haven't seen it in a long time but i just thought it was a really good movie and it's funny you mention uh the score i'm thinking back to it and all i can remember is the movie itself i can't remember the score <laughs> so and that's funny. I want to go back and watch it and 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 just laugh at. Uh... Sometimes a rock song, like you pointed out, Cecil and RoboCop, Django Unchained. I'm enjoying the movie for the most part. Then they get to the rap song in the middle uh... of a late 1800s western, and I just went, "What? 
the hell was that? That was Jamie Foxx trying to get his uh, creative freedoms into the film. Yick. But it was so inappropriate that it that that literally just took me out of the film. Same. Why am I watching a cowboy movie with rap music? <laughs> that was, you know, it's it, sometimes the song placement is very very important. And then there are other times where you have movies where the soundtrack's all you remember. Now, I'm not saying this in a, in a distinctly negative way, but go back and watch like the Albert Pune movies, Vicious Lips or Radioactive Dreams. They're both fine movies. I like both movies quite a bit. What I take away from both of them is the amazing score by Sue Sad. Her songs are the best part of that movie. They are so far above these movies that I like that I've actually sought out the rare Sad singles from that film because neither film had a soundtrack released. And mm. it's kind of rare when you go, you know what, the rock music in this song, is, or in this movie, is better than the goddamn movie. You don't encounter that <laughs> that often, do you? When you do, it's pretty great because at least there's something that's memorable about the film. Uh, I can't think of of an example where I heard a song uh, where I, I, I took it away as something that was more memorable than the movie itself uh, introduced me to a lot of uh, metal bands I'd never heard of, so that's something. I, I think that um, I, I would say yes with Vicious Lips because uh, the soundtrack in that is just so awesome. And the movie is is good. It's silly, but it's it's not one of Pune's best. I can listen to the Sue Sad song Lunar Madness on a goddamn loop. I love that mm -hmm. song so much, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I can't think of um, I can't think of any any movies where the sound. I mean, there are a lot of movies I like where the movie's good and the soundtrack's good, but uh, unfortunately, I'm drawing a blank with uh, movies where the the soundtrack is is you know is great, but the movie's bad. I just remembered which one is one that I took away more from the soundtrack than I did from the movie. I hated Hobo with a Shotgun, but I loved Power Gloves soundtrack. Oh, how did you hate Hobo with a shotgun? Well, that's a I different just didn't topic. Like it. I didn't like it. I didn't like it, but I thought the music, I thought it had a cool visual element to it, and I loved Rudger Hauer, but nothing else really sat right with me. But wow. that soundtrack by Power Glove, I can listen to all day. Well, and the soundtrack is so important to a film that, you know, I mean, film nerds, the real hardcore ones, I think like us, who have gone out of our way to see work prints and things, Mm -hmm. It's strange how different a movie can be without the soundtrack. For instance, I've got a couple of Deep Space Nine and Battlestar Galactica episodes that are work prints. They've got all the sound effects, all the visual effects, but no music. And you wouldn't mm. believe how poor these scenes work without the score underneath them. <laughs> I got a Battlestar Galactica that has a temp song. The first appearance of the Pegasus in Battlestar Galactica, I've got a work print that has a different soundtrack that's very different than it's much more of like a michael bay soundtrack than it is the normal battlestar galactica soundtrack and it absolutely changes the tone of the scene the score <laughs> is so important that it can set a tone that just changing the the background music completely changes the scene was it spider-man 3 where tim burton had like the temporary score in place what was it was what it john tim burton have had to do with spider-man 3 did I say Tim Burton? Oh, you said God, Tim sorry. Burton. I meant Sam Raimi. Okay, uh, that makes a little more sense. But my brain is elsewhere this evening. The, when Sam Raimi uh, had the score in place, I believe it was Spider-Man 3, and uh, he ended up, there was somebody else who was writing the score for it, 
he ended up liking the temporary score and basically told whoever was was writing the or was it Danny Elfman that was writing the score for it? And then he basically like the, he said he'd never work with him again because he well, that is he kind could, of a dick move to do. Oh, it was yeah. a major dick move to do. And it's it just kind of goes to show like where his head is anymore. Uh, you know, he's another one who, you know, with uh, with with Beetlejuice and uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, just so many like awesome scores and then to dick him over like that. Sometimes just changing out the rock song. Sometimes it's done, you know, for legal reasons nowadays for licensing. Have either of you seen the Return of the Living Dead work print versus no. the theatrical cut? I haven't. Well, you guys know how perfectly Tonight We'll Make Love Till We Die by SSQ works when Trash is taken off her clothes and dancing on the tombstone, right? That scene is burned in my brain. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure for two reasons. <laughs> that scene in the work print I have is set to Vanity's Nasty Girl. Oh. And maybe that would have worked if I'd seen the Nasty Girl version first. But knowing tonight we'll make love till we die, I just go, wow, Nasty Girl so doesn't work here. <laughs> you know, so sometimes just swapping a song out can make a major, major difference in how a scene works, which yeah. comes down to the licensing nonsense that so many DVD releases have to deal with. Yeah. But, but now l let's talk about composers. Do you think a composer in general has a certain style? Like when you hear a James Horner score, can you go, that sounds like James Horner? Because there's a few composers that I think can do that. Like John Carpenter, it's, he sounds like John Carpenter. Yeah. I think... I think Richard Band sounds like Richard Band. Mm -hmm. Just Elmer Bernstein sounds so much like Elmer Bernstein that when I was watching for It Came From Beyond Midnight, the 1989 movie Slipstream, I didn't even pay attention to the credits. I didn't know Elmer Bernstein did the soundtrack. And I just, I'm listening to the score and I'm going, why does this movie remind me of the movies Heavy Metal and Ghostbusters? <laughs> Both also by Elmer Bernstein. And it's just like his style from the Heavy Metal score and the Ghostbusters score was so prevalent in Slipstream that it started to distract me because I kept thinking about Ghostbusters and Heavy Metal. Mm -hmm. So do you think there are composers out there that where you just you know who they are just from sound? You don't need to read the credits to know who did the score. Absolutely. And sometimes it's because they will uh, begin to maybe rip themselves off a bit. Or uh, in James Horner's case, I believe it was for Aliens. He didn't really have a lot of time, so he borrowed a lot of stuff from Wrath of Khan, but still ended up making something awesome. But yeah, he he's always got... Uh, Certain elements, like he's known for the da 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 da, -da like kind of sound. A lot of that will show up in a lot of his scores. Hans Zimmer has the dan 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 that shows up in almost every 
score. The Hans Zimmer stuff is much more upbeat. Yeah, he's got this very like um, heroic kind of sound to his scores, and uh, he's he's like from his work going back to like Black Rain, Backdraft, The Rock, Gladiator. I love his work, and I think it really really stands out nice. And he's he is easily one of those guys where you hear a movie that has his music playing, you don't have to see the credits, you know it's Hans Zimmer. Uh, or if you're watching a like a Lucio Fulci flick, it's it's pretty easy to pinpoint that it's uh, Fabio Frizi doing some. Or if or, you're watching or, 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 uh, Argento, Gen- you know it's yeah, Goblin. Or Argento, you know it's either Goblin or just Claudio Simonetti doing some solo work. Um, you know with uh, John Carpenter, it's either him or Alan Howarth uh, busting an awesome score. Uh, the the Steven Seagal uh, early '90s movies, uh, David Michael Frank's scores in those movies, or uh, or his music from um, Best of the Best Two, or Alan Silvestri, you absolutely know that that's him in uh, Predator or or Back to the Future. He's another guy that's got, like, a certain element that you can hear. Uh, no matter what score you're hearing, there's something that you'll hear that will indicate it's him. Like, uh, his scores for Predator 2 and Judgment Night are very similar. But in a, it's, it's, um, it's a good kind of thing where it's like they're, they're not necessarily ripping them off, ripping themselves off. There's an element where you know it's them and they're, they're, they're putting their mark on the score and you get excited when you know that it's them because, hey, you know, he did uh, the, the music he did for that last movie I saw was awesome. So, you know, this one's going to be awesome, too. The two that always come to mind for me, it's John Williams and John Carpenter. Like you, you hear them and within within 10 seconds, you immediately know who it is because uh, John Williams has those those scores that just build and you you know it's it usually starts off with like a, a, a low bass and kind of da, 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 da. and so you immediately know okay well that's him mm-hmm. or it comes out just thunderous booms uh, and John Carpenter just has those amazing synth scores yeah. that always resonate they they just immediately you're like oh this is so kick ass like I sometimes you don't even want to watch the movie you want to just listen to the music not even like Escape from New York or anything. They live. Yeah. Uh, no. mm-hmm. It had it had almost like this synthy old west kind of style to what yeah. what they live. Which is what he was going for. Very bluesy. That very you know, just so kick ass. With that said, do you think that that the that scores in general evoke a certain maybe when they're made maybe not even like the style of movie that they are but when they're made like you can hear a score and you might not know what movie it's from right away and you go that was mid-70s or holy (laughs) crap that was 1988 that as soon as you hear something like 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 franco micheletti's score for the visitor you go holy crap that's 1979 
you think that, that the scores are kind of tied to the time period when they're made or maybe maybe when the movie is made? Or do you think that is something that they intentionally do that this movie is made in 79? I want it to sound like 79. Depends, because, uh, you know, there are some movies that are made in 1979, but they're fantasy films or they're superhero films. So they've got soundtracks or scores that are timeless. And then you have other ones that are set in, you know, 1985 and they have a score or soundtrack that is kind of grounded in what is popular at the time. Uh, for example, uh, with Spider-Man, uh, the first one, the the score is is very good. But then they did things like add Macy Gray into the soundtrack and that immediately dates the film. Because it's like, okay, well, that's somebody who was really popular for five minutes when they were filming. I, I, I have a better one for that. Dan Aykroyd's Nothing But Trouble, the Humpty Dance guy, is in the movie and does <laughs> right. the song. Remember that? And you're like, <laughs> did you really think that was going to be like some timeless piece of music, Dan? <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I mean, he did, he did rap with, uh, with Tom Hanks and Dragnet. That's another it's a thing. City of Crime. It's city of crime. I think <laughs> if if you are uh, if there's a movie from like the mid 80s, maybe early 90s, and you're a couple of white guys that shouldn't be rapping but are rapping, then yeah, that absolutely positively dates the film. I actually like the song "City of Crime" quite a bit, really. <laughs> oh, I didn't say that it was bad. It's just it's. It's so bad that it, you know, uh, not to do the whole invoking the thing, but it's so bad that it does it rev- turned around and became good because it's so ludicrous. It's so yeah. white guy rap, really. It's so <laughs> white guy rap. Well, you have Dan Aykroyd doing the voice, you know, that that very monotone. Well, rah, he's rah, doing the Joe Friday. He's doing the Joe Friday, and then you have uh, Tom Hanks really trying to sell it. You know, you better make it on the double. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, when you watch that video, Tom Hanks really looks like he's having fun, though. He yeah. looks like he's having a lot of fun. This is the city. It's a city of crime. My name is Friday. I carry a badge. 3.15 a.m., Thursday, January 15th. It was chilly that morning in the city of Angels. On this particular occasion, we happened to witness a pagan ritual in progress. <laughs> Streamek, we're just in time. We have stumbled into a major crime. They got the girl off right. Now that's not nice. I think she is the subject of a sacrifice. Buddy, we're putting this party on ice. But don't you know we really ought to read them their rights? Read them their rights. Read them their rights. Well, I'm here tonight to rap about your rights. Because right now you're in trouble. Don't have to say nothing at all. Y'all got two calls and you better make them all the And you also got to consider, at the time, Dan Aykroyd was the name. Like, Tom Hanks was still kind Tom of... Tom Hanks bosom- was the rising star. It, it dates a movie depending on the composer. Because I think when you look when you look at uh, 
movies that like Basil Polidorus, Hans Zimmer, Alan Silvestri, guys like that have done the scores for. Uh, a lot of their scores then sound a lot like scores that they would do later on. Like uh, the, the Starship Trooper score, for instance, isn't that much um, different in like time period quality or whatever as something like Robocop or Conan. It has that same sort of orchestral uh, booming quality. He's a guy who, much like Basil Polidorus, was making a lot of stuff. It, it, it could resonate into into today's scores very as well. Like I think the Alien score easily stands the test of time. Same Wrath of Khan, even like Willow, even uh, Wolfen, uh, all those really stand the test of time. But like like Forty Eight Hours and Commando are yeah, this is an eighties movie. What was another like a really good example are. Like like a Claudio Simonetti or you know John Carpenter's '80s scores, you know that these are from '80s movies. Like say if, if you listen to the Drive soundtrack and you don't know who did it, and you hear like uh, Cliff Martinez's click uh, tick of the clock, I think he did. I think he did. Um, it's a very almost uh, very reminiscent of like Tangerine Dreams score in Thief, and then you realize that it's from a movie from 2011. And it's like well that uh, that fooled me because you you wouldn't figure that a movie with such a a synth-heavy score would be a, a recent thing, so it, it does it does date it in a way. But uh, at the same time, I think a, a lot of um, a lot of modern filmmakers and uh, modern composers are kind of going back to that '80s synth style and sort of bringing it back. You mentioned some of the the scores. What about when a certain musician, not a composer, but a band, does a score for a movie? I, I don't mean loaning a rock song. Like Toto with Dune or Queen mm-hmm. with with Flash Gordon, is that usually immediately apparent? Like when you hear the Dune score, hear the score the underscore to say the 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 battle to to take rocket ajax in flash gordon does that (laughs) strike you as queen right away
originate the mind. Right. With with Flash Gordon and Queen, it's it's absolutely Queen. Like it, <laughs> there's there's no denying it. it, it yeah. I mean, it immediately sounds like Queen. Uh, it's it's not like sometimes when uh, you have a band that'll do uh, a soundtrack or a score for a movie and they kind of do it a little bit differently. Like Trent Reznor's did uh, done some uh, scores and whatnot. And it it's it's had his touch to it, but it it's not immediately identifiable as a Trent Reznor song. Uh, same mm-hmm. thing with Marilyn Manson. I was kind of impressed with uh, some of the some of the stuff that he's done because I'm not a fan of Marilyn Manson, but I thought that his scores were actually kind of cool. But yeah. uh, when you get a a, a band uh, like you know Fastway or something that does uh, the the soundtrack for uh, Trick or Treat, that's really cool. And you know it sounds like well at the time I didn't know who Fastway was. I since <laughs> knew who they were, but at the time I was like, oh, this After is a cool rock. Night. Right. <laughs> Uh, as far as Toto for Dune, no, <laughs> that one does not immediately make you think of Toto because Toto, <laughs> you think you think Africa, yeah. you know, you don't you don't think that, you know, that cool but kind of weird score that we got for uh, for Dune mm-hmm. and and an odd choice, too. But then yeah. again, Dune is is just an odd movie, uh, but, good movie, Dune, but an odd movie. But I Toto like was not the first choice. The first choice was Pink Floyd. Mm. Oh, Jesus. Oh, God. Flash Gordon. Yeah, that's obvious. You can tell that's Queen. Just just by it sounds. It doesn't need Freddie Mercury's voice for you to know that that's Queen. Uh, for Toto, though, um, you can't hear Toto in the Dune score at all. Like, to me, Dune may not be one of the greatest movies ever, but I consider that to be one of the greatest scores ever for for a sci-fi fantasy film. That's one that I really think stands the test of time i i would like to hear more music like that in uh in movies like that i think that's definitely one of those movies where i i think a lot of people will remember the score uh a lot more than they remember the movie besides a few uh hilarious lines from uh sting i will kill him um <laughs> you must milk this kitty <laughs> But I think, uh, yeah, it's it's so weird with that, and I, I really gotta. It, it's a testament to to Toto, I think, being some uh, some because they were obviously the sort of poppy '80s uh, the guys you would hear on the radio with songs like Africa and stuff like that. But but they they could really churn out a, a damn good score too, and I think that's really really surprising. Like they they, they easily could have done some legit uh, uh, movie music because the Dune score, while, I mean, it's it's one of my favorites so bad that it's good movies, but that score is just one of my favorite scores of, of all time. And I think it would it would surprise a lot of people to know that that's those are the guys that did the, did the Africa song. Before we get into rock songs and how they work in movies, do you think that there are certain instruments that are used in scores that immediately tell you what type of movie it is? Like, as soon as you hear a theremin, doesn't that immediately kind of go to a 50s-style throwback kind of fun sci-fi movie? Like, does not a theremin immediately make it a sci-fi movie in your head, whether it should or not? I mean, are there certain instruments or certain types of scores that immediately tag the movie for what it is? Like Basil Polidorus, it's immediately, you know, the Conan score is a fantasy movie, that type mm-hmm. of film. Or James Horner, it's it's much more of an action-y type movie. There are there are instruments that will definitely indicate what, what kind of a movie it is. And it, it goes back to the importance of uh, using the right kind of music for the right kind of movie. 
I think when you hear like sort of uh, like a synthy, when, when you hear a bit of synth in the soundtrack, that can indicate that it's maybe uh, like a sleazy crime movie or a sci-fi movie, depending on how much of it is used. When, when you hear, at least for me, when I hear um, a saxophone or like solo guitaring, I know that I'm watching a 90s era action movie. Like I know that I'm definitely watching most likely a direct-to-video one most like oh, yeah lethal either weapon. A video either a director video movie or like hard to kill or out for justice or something like or, that or, like or, or like just, a shane black movie yeah you, you know that yeah you're watching something like that so i i think it yeah instruments are the types of instruments used uh it can definitely indicate not only the type of movie you're watching but depending on the movie and the composer what era it's from because for me saxophone usually will indicate sleazy 90s action glory either there's some some action going on or, or there's, there's some, some action going or on there's some action going <laughs> on yeah so yeah uh, like there's there's the the saxophone stingers from lethal weapon and then just the you know I, all i hear is fuck the the uh the opening from careless whisper you know just over <laughs> every every balls deep <laughs> Red Shoe Diaries episode. It, it certain scores just have that that feel where it, it fits and it does take you back to a certain time frame. Uh, you could you listen to it and it evokes those feelings. Uh, I think now though it's a little bit different because we're getting so many more people in the industry that have grown up listening to that stuff, and now they're putting retro scores in so we're getting current movies that have scores that scores and soundtracks that feel more like the 80s like um i just recently saw a movie that was outstanding uh called the guest and oh the guest was so good but the score or the soundtrack for that had this weird 80s tinge to it that absolutely worked i freaking loved it now to go back to something we said before i thought of another band that i would not have pegged a soundtrack from the soundtrack to to live and die in la was done by wang chung oh my god who the hell would have thought that huh see so i know you love that movie can you hear any (laughs) wang chung in that soundtrack you cannot hear (laughs) any bang uh what was it uh Everybody have fun tonight. Everybody, Everybody Wang, Chung, Wang Chung tonight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you cannot hear Wang Chung at all in there. And that's that's great, you know? It, it's just uh it, it's it's funny when that kind of stuff happens. Now, let's talk about rock music. When rock music is and we're not talking about the licensing and all that. But like when you hear a rock song, whether especially if you hear it maybe for the first time in a movie, is does that taint how you hear it, like if you hear it on the radio later. The 80s and 90s were real big about having a rock video tie-in. If it was a studio film, they were trying to have a rock song that they could also have on MTV as a tie-in. Does does the movie tie-in with the rock song, or does the rock song tie-in with the movie? Because, for instance, like I love Inagata DeVita by Iron Butterfly, but I can never hear that song on the radio without thinking of how masterfully it was used at the end of Manhunter. Manhunter mm, made that song so much creepier than it already was. So yeah. w- so which direction does it go for you when you have a rock song in a movie? Does the music influence the movie for you, or does the movie influence the music when it comes to that song? 
Oh man, because um, there were a lot of bands that I've uh, that I discovered through 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 movies because I I didn't grow up in the in the eighties. I grew up in the nineties, but I I grew up watching a lot of eighties uh, and seventies movies on VHS. So I would discover a lot of bands that way. Like I can't. I can't listen to Sammy Hagar's Winner Takes It All without picturing arm wrestling. Uh, I can't listen to Party Man by Prince without, you know, picturing Jack Nicholson defiling some artwork or uh, or Dawkins without picturing Nightmare 3. Dream or, uh, Warriors! Yes! Or if I listen to Alice Cooper, um, you know, I either think of Friday the 13th Part 6 or Class of 1984. Or I don't Prince know of Darkness. I don't know if I Am the Future was made for Class of 1984, but I completely associate it with that movie. So for me, a lot of them, like, like I mean, Queen uh, is one of the few where I knew about Queen before I knew about Highlander. But because I got so into Highlander, like, there's no way that I can listen to a lot of Queen music. I mean, of if course, you if you hear any to... of the Queen songs from that soundtrack on the radio, yeah. you yeah. just here you just see connor mcleod cutting clancy round's head off don't you <laughs> yeah because i mean because a lot of the like who wants to live forever give me the prize princes of the universe i mean those were obviously made for the movie so it's kind of it's kind of hard not to not to think about christopher lambert and the trench coat and the masamune cutting some heads off which which i think is awesome that one really tied it all in together so well but for me, like a lot of it is me hearing songs and being reminded of movies because of when I grew up and uh, discovering a lot of bands through my favorite movies. One of the rock stations around here plays You Could Be Mine by Guns N' Roses all the time. <laughs> all I picture are all the scenes from Terminator 2. Yeah, because, same. Because that, that video came out before the movie. So mm. I watched the hell out of that video in early 1991 before I saw Terminator 2. Yeah, that again, that's another case of a movie getting me into the band. Like, I didn't know what Guns N' Roses was until I saw Terminator 2, and then I got really into them. And again, I can't listen to, uh, to You Could Be Mine, you know, without picturing Arnold on the motorcycle and shit like that. Uh, I'm thinking uh, when I'm watching Breakfast Club... <laughs> I'm thinking of Don't You Forget About Me. Like, so whenever I hear that song, I immediately think of The Breakfast Club. Weird Science, of course, I mm -hmm. think, you know, you, you automatically think of Weird Science. So there's a lot of songs where you, you know, if even if I hear the song before I see the movie, once I see the movie and it has the song in there, it's forever entwined. Like, yeah. I'm always thinking of this song, even if there's a song that's been around for a while and then it gets put into the soundtrack. Oh, especially, absolutely. Well, like, uh, I think an example of that for me would be Night of the Demons. When Bauhaus's mm -hmm. Stigmata Martyr starts playing, that's the first time I ever heard that song by Bauhaus, which was a couple of years old at that point. Now, whenever I hear Stigmata Martyr, I picture Angela dancing around and then biting Stooge's nose off. You know, so, so yeah, sometimes... The, the things are intrinsically tied together. Or, uh, again, with Bauhaus, Bela Lugosi's dead. I cannot see that without picturing the hunger. At the end of The Devil's Rejects, in its entirety, the, well, they no, play they, Freebird. They, 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 don't play, they don't play the entire Freebird, because they once the guitar solo comes out, it kind of fades, and they go, and the score comes up over the credits. But Freebird is so... Per, so is Midnight Rider. 
the escape at the beginning for the credits. That mm-hmm. movie has such a gorgeous use of its soundtrack. And yeah, fold around and fold around and fell in love when they're doing the slow fades and the pans and and like uh, baby just getting like messed up. Like it's so like yeah, that had. I mean, of course, Rob Zombie is going to know how to put music into his movies. Uh, I think that 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 kind of is where he peaked. I, I liked uh, House of a Thousand Corpses, but I, I loved Devil's Rejects. Yeah, and I, I, uh, he, I wanted what Rob I Zombie wanted to like Lords of Salem, but well, it just what, it flopped for me. What, where, where, where where Rob Zombie really screwed up with the music was he was just taking by the time he got to the Halloween remakes, he was just taking songs he liked and putting them in the movie whether they fit or not. That it was ending, turning into a very uh, Quentin Tarantino kind. Yeah. Of thing. That ending, yeah, uh, of, that ending over Love Hurts does not work at all. Yeah. I like Love Hurts. I even like that version of it because it's a cover. It's not the original. But holy <laughs> shit, does that not work for that movie? <laughs> I, I could see it like like on paper. It like all right, that would you know that would be cool. But then like yeah, in in execution, it just doesn't work. And maybe, mm. unfortunately, he he might have already paid the, for the rights for it at that point or whatever. Or maybe he, I, I would guess that he thought it worked. But yeah, unfortunately, sometimes it just doesn't work. When it comes to especially rock songs, do you think the soundtrack is as important as the movie? Because especially going back to, like I said, the 80s and 90s, major movies, they all had the rock video tie-in and the soundtrack. And in some cases, they found that the soundtrack made more money, I mean, selling it on CD and cassette, made more money for the company than the movie did in ticket sales. So do you think when it comes to not the score, but picking the right rock soundtrack for your movie, which is now a rights nightmare, but in the 80s and 90s it was easier, is finding the right rock score as important as how the movie is cut or the direction? Um, I think a good example of a soundtrack being just eons better than the movie the spawn movie from the 90s i think is objectively a piece of shit but that's a soundtrack that i still listen to to this day and a lot of stuff that to me uh, still holds up to this day but the movie is just horrible yet you can go back and listen to the soundtrack. i think a lot of people are saying that about uh batman forever and and just it's just so many of these 90s movies that came out that to a lot of people were just just complete bomb but had all these really great, great songs on them. So, so yeah, I think it, uh, it does totally make sense that, you know, before the whole copyright fiasco of today. With, with Spawn, the, this, this soundtrack is absolutely better than the movie. I think the movie, there's, there's a lot of history that goes along with it uh, yeah. as to why it, it ended up the way that it did. You had uh, a, a freaking theater or uh, whatever the studio was. Like, they had all these rules. Like, they couldn't say imply that he went to hell or they would immediately get an r rating and all these yeah. like nonsensical rules and and stuff to get them you know to an r rate or to a pg-13 rating and and uh one that actually came to me this is a case of the movie being cool but the soundtrack being better was rock and roll the animated one Oh with, my uh, God! I love the soundtrack to Rock and Roll. Soundtrack for that is so good. That's and the and thing. it was never the released. Movie... They never released no. a soundtrack because the movie bombed so hard that almost all the songs that were written for Rock and Roll 
were just released by the individual bands. Like Blondie ended up releasing a couple of her songs as B-sides. Lou Reed mm-hmm. took his. Iggy Pop took his. Earth, Wind, and Fire took theirs. There never Cheap was trick. a rock and roll soundtrack. And that sucks because <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. And that's the thing. The movie itself is cool, but it's like the soundtrack is just memorable. The soundtrack you remember like beyond the film. And it does help to elevate it a little bit higher because the soundtrack is so good. But yeah, that's ridiculous. But it's a it's a shame how it just completely flopped. Well, I mean, it was a more mature animated film, which is kind of what we were From getting. Canada, at the time. so it wasn't even an American film. Yeah, it wasn't even an American film, and uh, it just it didn't go over well at the time. It since found its audience, but it took you know a few decades. Well, but then, like, with animated films, look at, like, Heavy Metal. The soundtrack is the reason that that movie stayed off home video until 1996. They were they were able to sell the soundtrack as records and cassettes and CDs. They didn't have the licensing rights to put it on video. You could buy the soundtrack, and you could watch the movie on cable, but that soundtrack was what was keeping it off home video. That's just f***ing idiotic, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Stupid, stupid business. A rock soundtrack is just as important as a score. And sometimes people get those confused. Like with heavy metal, when people think of that, they think of Journey and Black Sabbath and whatnot. They don't think of Elmer Bernstein and that gorgeous score that connects all of the rock songs together. Music is so integral to enjoying movies that it's almost criminal to think of how little respect the, the, the composer gets or, or even just the arranger, the person who figures out, you know what, this rock song from the 70s works perfect over this action scene or whatnot, that, it, it's not just going, put that there. In a lot of cases, they edit the song or they edit the movie to fit the song. You lose that nowadays. Nowadays, it seems like it's just plunk, 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 you know? It's a lost art. I've, I've seen uh, a lot of the movies that I see lately. I'm, I'm rather disappointed by, by the scores that I hear in them because I just I find them to be boring. And I, I think um, it's just a lot of it is just booming noises. Um, what's what's the guy's name? I think I think Steve Jablonski or something is uh, is the guy that's doing a lot of the music nowadays. He he, he did, uh, you know, he did like the the Friday the 13th uh, reboot and the Nightmare reboot and uh I think he did like the new Rambo and stuff like that. And just he does really generic sounding stuff other than other than pain and game, which was surprisingly good. A lot of them just kind of sound the same. I, I don't think anybody really stands out nowadays. It's uh, it's kind of hard to to hear somebody like a like a James Horner, uh, a Jerry Goldsmith, uh, a Brad Fiedel, somebody who, who made something as epic and as memorable as the as the Terminator theme. I think a lot of it sounds like the the. I don't know how uh, Hans Zimmer can go from something as as so epic sounding from uh, even like like Black Rain or even like The Rock to um and this is just my personal opinion I think the scores in the Batman movies fucking boring. Uh, independent artists are coming out of the woodwork. Guys like guys like Perturbator, guys like uh, guys like Kavinsky, all these um you know synth synth artists that are very uh, inspired by the, the works of of Tangerine Dream. John Carpenter, uh, Alan Howarth, they're they're really going to be the the saviors of of the of of uh, scores in in movies. Like if you watch movies like It Follows, uh, The Guest, uh, stuff like that, their scores are so much more memorable than the stuff that you're hearing 
in uh, in blockbusters nowadays. I would like to give a shout out to a friend of the show here. Dustin Kidd's Mr. 45 is yes. such a beautiful throwback to that John Carpenter style of synth score. You he guys should easily, go look for I could really see him doing uh, music for movies by far. Like he should. Yeah. Uh, who's the guy? I think the guy who did the guest was um, I don't I don't know if it was. Was it Adam Weingard? Yeah, it was Adam Weingard. Yeah, like he could. Uh, that guy is. um is using a lot of artists from stuff like uh, that are making the music for games like Hotline Miami. Uh, that's how that's how he got uh, you know guys like Perturbator into the score for the guest and stuff. I'm assuming because the track he used was from Hotline Miami. I, I think guys like uh, guys like Dustin Kidd could really be used and utilized in movies nowadays because a lot of the 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 filmmakers, the independent filmmakers that that have making music like that look up uh, i think he's on soundcloud as mr 45 and i think you guys if you like john carpenter's stuff you'll like dustin kidd's stuff uh, i just want to throw in with a similar uh thing i i don't think i've gushed about it on the show but i know i've gushed about it elsewhere the movie it follows on top of being easily the best film of the year better than fury road in my humble opinion it also had a score from a guy who himself who calls himself disaster piece and the score heavily invokes a john carpenter feel but not rip but not ripping him off it's Mm -hmm. it has an influenced by but it still feels like its own thing and it is uh, the, the only way i can describe it is iconic like when this is one of those movies and scores that 20 years from now, people are going to be talking about it like how people talk about Halloween uh, and Nightmare on Elm Street now. You know, it's that, oh, my God, this movie is so uh, influential and talk about how amazing the score was to go along with it. On top, I mean, on top of being an incredible film, the soundtrack is so freaking good and it fits it to a T. And that is something that takes an excellent movie and then just makes it legendary so yeah yeah, it's it's that good going to the topic soundtracks are very important a movie can survive a bad soundtrack but it does kind of take away from it and it definitely can make uh, a movie better if it can uh, you know it's tough i mean if it can make it worse because sometimes there are those soundtracks that are just boring and i don't remember what movie i was watching recently but oh my god it was uh and it wasn't inception but it was just so like every other scene was (laughs) and i'm like oh god stop it, it really, it just was, uh, I, can't, I don't, I, I, it was so bad. I've, I've blocked it out. I can't remember what movie it was. It was something from last year. And I was just irritated because that's a case of where, okay, you're taking something that is currently trendy and using it to death and to the detriment of the film. And so that's when soundtracks and scores do start to negatively impact the movie. So mm-hmm. it, it can go either way. It can it can elevate it to something else, can make it all right, passable because it's a you know, it's they just got whatever score in there, whatever soundtrack, or it can make it worse when they do shit like that. And see, I look at it as the composer is just as integral to this to the success of a movie as the writer, as the director, as a cinematographer, and as the cast. I think they are part of the main production necessary 
for a movie, and yet they're so often overlooked. For instance, just talking about soundtracks like on CD or on vinyl, everybody would go out and buy the rock soundtrack. How many people would go out and buy the score? Because a lot, a lot of those movies also had the score released, and they would sell maybe an eighth or a sixth of what the rock score would do. I think the mm. composer is criminally overlooked when it comes to the, to the success of a movie. And that's why James Horner dying at only 61, I think he, ha he probably had a lot of great scores left in him. Peter, as you get played out, where would people see you? You can see me. Uh, you can, uh, while hearing Dan Hill's It's a Long Road, you can, you can depressingly make your way to uh, Twitter, where I can be found at, at Zinematica. Uh, Facebook, The Cinemasochist, YouTube, The Cinemasochist, and I'm also located on 1201beyond.com. Cecil, what, what song plays you in? What is your entrance music? You can drive around the neighborhood listening to uh, Night Call from Kavinsky, looking like a badass Ryan Gosling, and uh, go to um, escapistmagazine.com, goodbadflicks.com, uh, geekjuicemedia.com. Uh, you can look me up on the YouTubes and all the other places. Give me money. If you listen to the lyrics of the song, theme song Radioactive Dreams by Sue Sad, I, I would say that is my theme song. Get me out of this wasteland. So you can find me at 1201beyond.com. You can contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Make sure you go to 1201beyond.com. Buy some T-shirts, guys. Help support the show. You can also read my column in Fangoria Magazine, VHS, every month, where I look at movies that you cannot find on DVD. Have a good night, guys.
1201 Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.